If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The Second World War was a seismic moment for all aspects of British national life, including the BBC. In the third episode of our monthly series, Marking the Corporation's Centenary, the media historian David Hendy explores how the BBC played a key role in the conflict and how the war left a lasting mark on the organisation's people. Putting the questions to David is Matt Elton. So David, when we finished the last episode, obviously the country was preparing for war, had just entered the first few months of the Second World War, which was something that was to affect every part of national life. How uh, important was the BBC in the nation's experience of the Second World War? Well, I would say this, wouldn't I, as a broadcasting historian, but really the BBC was absolutely central to the British population's experience of war. And it was a central part of the war effort. If you think back to the very beginning of war, it is experienced by people through the radio. That's where the announcement of war comes on Sunday, the 3rd of September, Neville Chamberlain speaking from Downing Street, that famous broadcast. And it's also that people know war is coming because broadcasting changes. Suddenly, the national and the regional programme disappear, television shuts down, and there is this new entity, the home service, on on the Friday, the 1st of September. So even before Neville Chamberlain speaks, uh, the BBC is changing. That gives an indication, in a sense, the BBC's change of broadcasting is in itself an announcement of war. And, and immediately, of course, other activities cease for a while. Theatres shut, sports events uh, are cancelled. The BBC and radio becomes a vital source of information and morale. Now, some of those other activities come back during the war, but but the BBC is 
a fundamental source of up-to-date information and it is a tool that is seen as vital by the government for sustaining morale. Now, of course, we know that there's a there's a great tradition in historical scholarship of drawing attention to some of the mythology of the wartime. The, the sense of the myth of the Blitz, for example, the idea that everyone pulled together, everyone was content and so on. But it's also true that myth-making was part of what was sometimes needed to help win the war and help sustain morale. And the BBC had this central role, really, in in trying to make it as much as as possible a people's war that civilians at home felt as if they were part of the war effort, that by cooking meals on rations, they were contributing to the war effort. And a a lot of the broadcasts were perhaps folksy, and some of them were no doubt a bit patronising, but sometimes this is what the war needed. And I think in many ways the BBC did more than many government ministries to give credit throughout the war to the efforts of ordinary working people, to make them feel part of the war effort. So it was quite a big change for the corporation itself. Um, Were there any, and we touched on this a bit last time, but were there any sort of prior experiences or preparation that the BBC had done that was able to inform its approach? Or was this a sense of just feeling its way into a new world, if you like? No one knows exactly what the course of war is going to be. So to some extent, the BBC was always feeling its way. But it had been preparing since the middle of the 1930s. That's when the first conversations had been had with government ministries about preparing for the possibility of war. And it was assumed that war would involve a swift and perhaps annihilating attack from the air. So all sorts of preparations were being made, especially after uh, Munich in 1938, but already, you know, steel shutters were being fitted to BBC buildings. There were discussions between the BBC and the RAF and the Air Ministry about transmitters. Would the BBC's transmitters help enemy aircraft be guided towards their targets? What would happen to BBC staff? Staff were organised into three categories, A, B and C. A would be those broadcasters who were vital to the war effort and would stay in place at the BBC. Uh, C would be those who were immediately uh, able to leave and join the armed services. And B were in a sort of in-between category. Plans were made for dispersal of the BBC, because if it is assumed that there's going to be a massive and sudden and possibly devastating attack on London, how do you keep the infrastructure of broadcasting going? So the BBC was busy buying up premises all around the country and trying to fit those premises so that it could disperse its staff and create a kind of network, which meant that if any one part of the BBC got hit, it could carry on broadcasting. And of course, one of the the main activities that was going on uh, highly secretively was uh, the transfer of staff to Wood Norton Hall, a a countryside manor just outside Evesham in Worcestershire, uh, where for much of the war, 
a huge number of BBC staff were located. And as far as the British population was concerned, the BBC was, as it were, broadcasting from London. And very often it wasn't. It was coming from places like Bristol and Bangor and Wood Norton near Evesham. So so the BBC had, had prepared uh, very, very thoroughly by uh, September 1939. You've touched on that a bit there as well. Um, were there any other ways in which the BBC had to change its operations and the way it did things as a result of the war? And I suppose as the war evolved across across the period? Yes, although it's, it's a contradictory story in many ways, a confusing story, because perhaps the most important single thing that happens right at the beginning is this is a national emergency and therefore... In one sense, the government has control over the BBC in a way that it, it, it didn't before the declaration of war. The BBC is now subject to control by the Ministry of Information. It's subject to censorship. We have a BBC where suddenly we have people sitting in studios called switch censors who are there with their fingers hovering over the knobs on the control desk, ready to turn off someone uh, if they're speaking into the microphone and they go off off script. Scripts have to be checked. BBC staff have dual roles. People are employed by the BBC, but they're seconded to the Ministry of Information and vice versa. So we have a BBC which is changed quite fundamentally by this sense of being directed by the government. On the other hand, um, when you have staff who are dispersed across lots and lots of different sites, when you have broadcasting which has to respond quickly to events, when you've got people who have to be delegated responsibility, you also get spur-of-the-moment kind of freedom of action. You get informality. You get people who think in the conditions of war, you are not going to turn up to a meeting of the Board of Governors wearing a tie. You're not going to put a coat on for a visiting member of the Cabinet. You're going to take a quick decision because you can't actually get London on the phone. People start to use first names. Dress codes change. There is a sense of camaraderie, of of shared experience of being under siege. And this creates, at the same time as as a more controlled BBC, a more informal BBC, a less hierarchical BBC in many ways. I think the other way in which the BBC's operations change fundamentally is that it becomes much more porous um, to people from overseas. Uh, the, The war effort is an allied war effort, so the BBC is not alone. It is having to draw in broadcasters from Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, uh, America, um, in order to learn how to broadcast to these countries across the world. So it becomes a more cosmopolitan place with people from the the dominions and the colonies, refugees from Europe and so on. And you you speak to um, people like Frank Gillard in his oral history testimony at the end of his career. He reflects on the BBC in wartime and he said it was a place that was changing fundamentally because of the arrival of new people, because of the need for informality uh, at this kind of fundamental programme-making level. There's a particular episode where the BBC itself 
became the centre of the story. Can you talk us through the story of the bombing of Broadcasting House and what happened and I suppose what the impact of it was? Well, the BBC was clearly on the target list of the Luftwaffe. Uh, the, 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 the German war aims were to uh, take out as much as possible the infrastructure uh, in, in Britain, the industrial infrastructure, the military infrastructure, and broadcasting they knew was part of this. So the BBC was a target all the time. It's transmitters, it's buildings all over the country. Now, the very epicentre of the BBC's operation was Broadcasting House in the West End in London. And there it was, a great big gleaming white stone building. And uh, it was, it felt vulnerable. And the staff who were there were felt vulnerable. And in September 1940, when the Blitz begins, it feels to many people as if it's only a matter of time before Broadcasting House is hit. By the end of September, St George's Hall, just round the corner, has been destroyed by an incendiary. The Langham Hotel, which is a BBC building just opposite Broadcasting House, that's been hit too. And then on Tuesday the 15th of October, you've got bombing all over the West End. Seems to be getting closer and closer. And just after eight o'clock on that evening, there is a direct hit on Broadcasting House. A 500-pound bomb comes through the seventh floor windows and crashes through two more floors and comes to rest in the music library in the fifth floor. And the whole building shakes. It's enveloped in smoke. We have extraordinary eyewitness accounts of this from multiple people who were there just coming on for the evening shift. And the, the sound and the devastation was so immense, everyone assumed that the damage and the worse was over. In fact, it wasn't, because this was actually a delayed action bomb. It hadn't yet exploded. And so it was while an hour later, several people, firefighters and staff, were trying to move the bomb out of the window, having just realised that it was a delayed action bomb, that was when it exploded one minute and 50 seconds past nine. Famously, people all around the country heard something on the nine o'clock news. Bruce Belfridge was reading the news in the basement and there was a kind of dull thud in the background and a pause while Bruce Belfridge was actually blowing the dust and soot off his script. Uh, And he was praised afterwards for keeping his cool. In in fact, he said he was terrified. He thought he might be trapped in the building and he was feeling claustrophobic. All around the building, uh, there were people anxiously wondering what had happened. Not many people had been evacuated from the building because it took a while to realise that the bomb hadn't gone off. Uh, And in the basement where people were sleeping, it was used as a temporary uh, accommodation for staff. People could hear drilling all night long. They knew that there was a rescue operation. It wasn't clear until the following morning uh, what had happened. And um, it was then that it was clear that six people had been killed, 23 people had been injured, a seventh person died a few days later. And a large number of studios and facilities had been put out of action. So broadcasting had carried on. Broadcasting House had survived. But it was a very, very vivid reminder of the BBC's vulnerability. And it wasn't the only occasion, because in fact, um, 
in early December, another landmine landmine bomb landed in Portland Place and uh, exploded. It, it caused electrical fires, flooding of parts of Broadcasting House, and put more facilities out of action all around the country. BBC facilities at Swansea were destroyed, at Birmingham, Bristol, and so on. And what is extraordinary for me, looking back at the accounts of life in the BBC in the wartime, is how central this this bombing of Broadcasting House has become in the BBC staff's own accounts of the war. It was as if it was a, a, a really important moment in people at the BBC realising that they really were part of the war effort. Their lives were being put on the line. Um, they weren't just vulnerable in an abstract sense. They were fighting, if you like, for the Allied cause. It's so interesting because I suppose it reminded them or showed to them that they were part of this war effort and this national fabric in a very immediate sense. They weren't just reporting on it at a remove, I suppose. Yes, that's right. They were, uh, I mean, apart from anything else, they were real flesh and blood people who were doing things like volunteering for air raid duties, civil protection, uh, uh, special constabulary duties and so on. So they knew what was happening in terms of civilian life. And they also knew what was happening at the front. Uh, so in many ways, they were kind of, they had a sort of double experience of war, both at the home front and very familiar with what was happening uh, at the battlefront as well. Um, and of course, that sense of of, of being a, a target of actually doing work that was worthwhile. And that that commitment to the war effort, I think, is is really significant because I think that we sometimes have a view that because the BBC was officially under government control and censorship, that broadcasters did what they did because they were told to do it. But actually, you talk to people like Geoffrey Brideson, say, um, who did lots of uh, wartime feature making and so on. And he says, look, I may have been a propagandist, but I only had to write what I felt. These were these were people who felt as if they were committed to the anti-fascist cause, as it were, and therefore to be part of that same effort, perhaps aligned with government, was OK. It was what was needed. We should talk about some of the key contributions that the BBC made to keep people informed about the war. Um, are there any particular moments or reports that stand out for you? I think... It takes a while for the BBC to really come into its own as a news operation. So, yes, the news bulletins are there. But in the early years of the war, the Ministry of Information and the armed services are not particularly helpful about keeping the BBC up to date. Um, the schedules have been cleared, the bulletins were there, but sometimes the BBC ha had a reputation of being a bit slow with the news and largely not through its own fault because it was struggling to get up-to-date information from the government and the ministries. But by 1944, uh, what you have with D-Day is a, a culmination of the BBC's news uh, ability, its, its gathering ability to report vividly and up to date. Now, uh, this was a long time coming, but it was realised in 1942, early 1943, 
that when the opening of the second front came, the long-awaited opening of the second front, this was not just going to be important militarily, it was going to be important for civilian morale. Uh, and it was going to be important that whatever happened, it was covered extensively. People knew uh, what was happening. The BBC needed to get a vast system in place in order to be able to cover D-Day as it became. Uh, for a start, it had to recruit and develop the idea of war correspondence. So it had to create a so-called war reporting unit. It had to train its reporters into working at the front in close combat, as it were, with troops. It had to develop a chain of transmitters, mobile transmitters that would allow reporters to send their reports back from a front, a front that would keep on moving. It had to develop ways of recording on the spot. Before the war, recording was, and even in the early years of the war, recording was on big, cumbersome trucks. Um, what the BBC had to develop was small, portable recording devices that individual war correspondents could lug around with them. And they developed something called the midget recorder, which weighed about 40 pounds, in which war correspondents could record short reports. So there's there was a... And all of this, of course, had to be developed in secret without giving away the details of D-Day planning. But it was all in place by June 1944, which meant that uh, the BBC was able to give up-to-date and immersive accounts of the progress of, of D-Day and the immediate aftermath of D-Day. There were correspondents who were um, with the boats going across the channel, with landing craft and planes, uh, parachuting in on gliders. So you have lots of different reports coming in from different parts of the battle. And it's on D-Day that you get the very first uh, edition of a new programme on the BBC called War Report, which is then almost nightly until the end of the war, which is a forum for all of these up-to-date reports from the battlefront coming in and giving people every night a, a vivid, accurate, up-to-date and immersive account of the progress of the Second Front as Allied troops moved slowly, fitfully, but relentlessly across Western Europe. And, and millions of people were listening to this. It was a kind of gripping... Uh, account of war that pulled together the the topicality of news with the kind of the colour and the immersiveness of the features tradition in the BBC. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The political warfare executive and the Ministry of Information would tear their hair out at not having total control over the BBC. But they also recognised that if they wanted to use the BBC to reach listeners in Europe, say, then those listeners in Europe would only be listening to the BBC if they trusted it. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match 
with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The relationship between the BBC and the armed forces is really interesting. Can you talk us through the offering that the BBC made to service personnel and I suppose some of the challenges inherent in that kind of broadcasting? Well, there are two good examples of this. The first, I suppose, is the forces programme. And the need for that was pretty obvious quite early on in the war, where troops in the the British Expeditionary Force stationed uh, in uh, France were not listening to the BBC. They were starting to listen to French commercial stations and even enemy propaganda stations. Um, And this was regarded as a rather dangerous thing. So uh, the BBC hastily uh, negotiated with government the opportunity to open up a second service in addition to the home service called the Forces Programme, which was designed essentially to be ideal listening for troops stationed in 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 barracks and in the field in other words it had to be something that was suitable for background listening it couldn't be too heavy it had to be quite light overall people from the bbc had visited the troops and tried to work out what it is that they wanted and they wanted mu- music and they wanted comedy they wanted some news but not too much of it and so the forces program in a way was a huge break for the bbc because instead of in that grand rethian tradition giving the listener what was good for the listener it was actually the listener and the listener's tastes dictating what the bbc was going to supply um and and so uh, this was a this was a, a significant and important tactical move to ensure that that allied troops were listening as it were to the bbc and 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 hearing the right messages But for listeners at home, of course, it was also a chance to have a bit of variety as well. They didn't any longer just have the home service. They had a choice. They could switch to the forces programme and they could listen to a bit more music. So it was a it was a a big uh, break for the BBC. The second example, which in many ways was a more complicated and knotty affair, was that 
in the weeks and months after D-Day, the BBC was responsible for supplying and running a service for the Allied troops, the Allied Expeditionary Force. And this was supposed to be a joint service. General Eisenhower wanted a joint radio service that would be listened to not just by British troops, but by Americans and Canadians and somehow uh, bond them together into a unified uh, force. And this would be shared out. Parts of it would be American in content, part Canadian, part British. But because it was the BBC that had most expertise and most resources in the right places, it was the BBC that was really responsible for making most of it and running it. And the American troops were generally not very happy with what they heard. As far as they were concerned, the news that was being put out on this Allied Expeditionary Force radio service was slanted towards Britain. It seemed to stress British victories rather than American victories. And American troops were also completely mystified by British comedic traditions, Itmar, it's that man again, with its kind of in-jokes and stock phrases, fell on very stony ground when it came to American troops. They wanted actually you know, American football. They wanted American sports. So there was quite a bit of friction between the Allies here, between Britain and the Americans when it came to this this other service for troops. Um, they were ironed out bit by bit, but but the friction was there right until the end. You touched on something interesting there, which was, well, lots of interesting things, but one of them was um, the sort of need to balance news reporting that could sometimes be quite heavy with light affair to keep people entertained, which, of course, is the other side of this story. Um, who were some of the figures who were enlisted to keep the BBC entertained, if you like? And how difficult was it to keep this sense of morale up? I mean, it is difficult because taste varies, right? Um, so uh, entertaining people, keeping people uh, happy or distracted or giving them a sense of escapism is not easy. And in many ways, um, the most interesting efforts are in that kind of strange middle ground where the BBC tries to make information more entertaining. So let me give you one example of that. Uh, the government were always keen on having lots of uh, public service announcements and, and messages about food savings and what to do with rationing and, and cooking tips and so on. And to, if they'd had their way, they would have filled the BBC schedules with kind of rather dreary talks from uh, government officials. And what the BBC does is realises as experienced broadcasters that you have to convey this information in entertaining ways so it it conveys messages about rationing through things like sketches with Gert and Daisy these comic characters created by Elsie and Doris Waters who become one of the kind of hits of wartime radio another hit of wartime radio uh, was Itmar, It's That Man Again. It actually started just before the war in 1939, the summer of 1939, and the first reactions were a little bit tepid, but but it it paid dividends if you carried on listening, because what you had was stock characters, catchphrases, you had Colonel Chinstrap and Mrs Mop, and 
eventually what they're doing is they're constantly lampooning the world of petty regulations. It's a chance to kind of let off steam a little bit and kind of prick the pomposity of kind of petty officialdom, you know, air raid wardens and Whitehall officials and so on. And and so this this extraordinary series written by Ted Kavanagh, produced by Francis uh, Worsley and, and with its, its key frontman, the comedian Tommy Handley, becomes a real wartime hit a chance in a sense to kind of be naughty within kind of safe parameters another example i suppose if we think about music is music while you work there were lots of music programs but this perhaps becomes uh, very iconic of of wartime and it starts off as this sort of simple idea which is to provide a sort of soundtrack uh, for factory workers now, good program making was all about variety and character and stylish presentation and so on. But music while you work was a half hour program twice a day uh, of non-vocal rhythmic music of a fairly constant tempo because that's what was needed as background music for for factory workers and and Winford uh, Reynolds who was the producer is in many ways a heroic behind-the-scenes figure of wartime entertainment because he is struggling with the band leaders and with his other team of producers who constantly want to introduce variety. Uh, And he's saying, no, we have to do bad radio. We have to have a constant tempo and we have to keep going and we mustn't have personality and so on. And he eventually succeeds and it becomes a hit programme because actually for half an hour, twice a day, not just factory workers... But listeners at home enjoyed humming and whistling and and kind of doing it to their housework and so on. And it became a way of connecting, again, the civilian population. Munition workers, people at home felt in some way connected and, again, part of the war effort. So, so these are kind of – these were – sort of stumbled upon almost uh they they couldn't necessarily have been foreseen or or or, or planned but they became uh iconic examples of the bbc's ability to 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 sense how it could sustain morale in quite subtle ways that's fascinating my parents talk about mrs mop and i've never really known where it comes from but it comes from comes from that it's amazing um on another note entirely, was the BBC involved any, in any secret initiatives during the war that have subsequently come to light? Oh, yes. The BBC was up to quite a few f- <laughs> secret things. Um, I mean, one of them, which was there right at the beginning, which was it was not profoundly secret, but it certainly wasn't drawn attention to, was the activities of BBC monitoring. So BBC monitoring, which was based in Wood Norton, uh, outside Evesham, uh, was an eavesdropping operation where uh, by the end of the war, um, a thousand people were, were there assembled, eavesdropping on broadcasts from all around the world started as a small-scale operation, but it became a vital cog in in not just the BBC, but the country's uh, wartime machinery. Um, People would eavesdrop, 
They would record bulletins, especially from Germany, of course. Um, these would be transcribed. They would be analysed. And every night, uh, summaries and reports would be written, which were then transmitted or carried physically down to London to the secret service departments, government ministries and BBC newsrooms. And it gave the BBC and the country unique up-to-date insight into what was being broadcast, what was being said on air, and how that could be interpreted and read for extra information about changes in German thinking and, and, and so on. So that was one aspect of it that, that continued throughout the war. Another aspect, which was perhaps even more secret, was the use of operational messages. In other words, coded messages to Europe. Now, this starts really in about 1941. Um, and these messages are brought to the BBC by a number of um, shady government departments, uh, uh, the political intelligence department of the Foreign Office, um, a, a department called E.H. Electra House that dealt with Germany. There was the Ministry of Economic Warfare and so on. They would ask the BBC to insert into its broadcasts into Europe slightly strange sentences which would provide key information to operatives, say from the Special Operations Executive, or for resistance movements in Europe. And it might say something like, uh, the mission will begin, or the mission has been cancelled, or other or expect someone to arrive, or expect someone to depart. And quite soon, the new creation, the political warfare executive, takes charge of coordinating all of these and works very, very closely with the European service based in Bush House at this stage. And the political warfare executive, it has its country headquarters, but its, its London headquarters are also in Bush House. So there is very close coordination between the two. And it's not an entirely foolproof system. So, for instance, uh, the Polish service um, used music rather than words as code. So occasionally the bulletins on the Polish service would run short and instead of a last news item, they'd play a record. And that record would be something that would have been brought in by a Polish officer using the code name Peter Peterkin. Um, and this disc would be taken to the studio. A specific track on the disc should be played. Um, and the problem was that the engineers in the studio who were kind of trained to, to, to think about sound quality and, and, and so on would look at the disc and see a scratch and they say, well, I'm not going to play that track. We're going to play another track. That's better. Uh, or they might say, we're not going to play a track. It's a bit vulgar to have music on a serious news days like, like, like this. And, and as one particularly extraordinary account of this puts it, what would happen would be the wrong bridge would get blown up as a result of these decisions taken in the BBC studio. Um, so, but but these operational messages, they were, they were by 1944, by the eve of D-Day, there are hundreds of messages every evening being snuck into uh, regular programmes. Uh, and there's no doubt from the counts that we get from, say, the French resistance, that these were extremely useful, 
and they made a difference. Finally then, uh, to what extent did the Second World War permanently reshape the BBC? And what new impression would you like to have people to have of the war and its relationship to the corporation? I think for me, I mean, there are several answers to this question. I think one of the things that's striking is that we must think of the BBC as an institution that was, yes, working in close coordination with government, but it was staffed by people who were not just faceless officials executing uh, instructions from on high. They are living, breathing, emotional people who share some of the experiences of the wider civilian population. And they're working in broadcasting and working for the BBC out of desire rather than out out of duty. They felt as if they were part of the war effort. They were putting their bodies on the line. They were working closely with government, but they also fought hard to keep the BBC's editorial values of independence. And and actually, we spend a lot of time thinking about government control. And it's true, it's there. It's, it's not a relationship without friction, that's for sure. Um, Alan Bullock, who worked um, for the BBC European service during the war, the great historian Alan Bullock, described the relationship as one of push and pull. Um, the political warfare executive and the Ministry of Information would tear their hair out at not having total control over the BBC. But they also recognised that if they wanted to use the BBC to reach listeners in Europe, say, then those listeners in Europe would only be listening to the BBC if they trusted it, so that they knew there was a limit to what they could do and how far they could push the BBC. And by and large, Alan Bullock says this, by and large, good values were maintained in terms of accuracy and truthfulness. Sometimes the full truth could not be told, but editorial values of kind of truthfulness generally prevailed. I think a couple of other points I would want to say is that even though the BBC was charged with sustaining morale, it wasn't just a one-note operation. It wasn't just jollying people along. If you look at the output on VE Day in 1945, it reflects a real kaleidoscope of moods. There's celebration, but there's also foreboding. You have live broadcasts from Piccadilly Circus of people cheering and dancing and celebrating. And you also have an interview with a mother in Glasgow who's lost one son and has another still fighting in the Far East. You also have a broadcast from Germany where we hear German civilians listening in to the new regulations, the new order of food distribution and so on. So we get a sense in which the tone uh, is one that's various. It's not a one-tone BBC. It's certainly a bigger BBC. In 1939, 5,000 people or thereabouts working for it. 1945, over 11,000 people. So it's more than doubled in size. And it's also got more of a global reputation And that's at a high watermark here because it's hugely expanded its overseas broadcasting. And 
by the end of the war, something like 20 million people are listening across Europe. They have a relationship with the BBC and therefore with Britain that they didn't really have before. Uh, and people listening in North America, in the Caribbean, uh, in parts of Africa, the Far East, Australia, New Zealand, um, the BBC is exporting its programmes. It's, it's now a very important dimension to the projection of Britain overseas. That was David Hendy. David's book, The BBC, A People's History, is out now published by Profile. And you can read more from David on the history of the BBC in the April issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.